CIUT 89.5 Toronto. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Hi, I'm Mark Tara, producer and host of Rainbow Country. Hi, this is Donna G from The More the Merrier. Hi, this is Daniel Garber the Movies for CIUT Critics Circle and this is CIUT at TIFF 2022. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the 47th edition of the Toronto International Film Festival. I am so glad to be here with you again. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. I can't wait to get us started. Hello, Canada! Hello! This is astonishing. First, I want to say I'm really glad we came to Toronto. (laughs) Hi, I'm Taylor. What an incredible honor it is to kick off the festival with our film. So excited to be home and to be showing this film in the place it was made. Saturday night, this is great. I have imagined this moment, I think, pretty much my whole life. This film is for the risk takers. I love you too. Thank you for everyone at TIFF. I've missed you guys so much. There is no audiences in the world like Toronto. And it's so, I'm so happy to be back. Can I be invited to be here? I'm so filled with a lot of emotions. My heart is full. I cannot say any word. I cannot even explain. There's so many things you could have been doing on a Monday night, but you're here to watch our big little film that could. I am finding myself very moved <laughs> and humbled, to say the least. Love you, Toronto. Love you, Tim. I do have to thank Tiff for your commitment to the art of filmmaking. Thank you, Share Her Journey, for your work championing women's causes. And thank you for this groundbreaker award. I wanted to just acknowledge all the people who work on this festival and how hard they work to make it happen and the dreams that they give to people. First of all, I think you're the greatest audience in the world. Seeing it with you means so much to us. Been able to bond with everybody. This is what it's about. It's the human experience, you know. It's really the people that you have these experiences with that makes them so fulfilling and rich. It's the audience that gives cinema life. So I must thank you for keeping me in the job that I love. Because it's nice work if you can get it. Hi, this is Daniel Garber the Movies to welcome you to episode 3 of CIUT at TIFF 2022. On today's show, we'll hear from Donna Jean an excerpt from her latest interview with South African director John Barker about his new film, The Umbrella Man. Mark Tar will be talking with Vera Drew about her controversial film, The People's Joker. And I'll be here too, interviewing Sam Soko and Lauren DeFilippo about their fascinating documentary, Free money. But first, here are my observations of TIFF this year. You could say it was the best of TIFFs, it was the worst of TIFFs. There's a huge emphasis on movie stars and Oscar bait films this year. I saw hundreds of fans swarming King Street, literally climbing walls to catch a glimpse of celebs like Taylor Swift, Harry Styles, Oprah Winfrey, and Hillary Clinton. 
Mm-hmm. For movie lovers, there were a lot of good movies, too, including a number of world premieres, and the audiences did go wild, giving long, standing ovations to movies like The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's autobiographical coming-of-age story, which won the People's Choice Award, and Brian Johnson's Knives Out sequel, Glass Onion, and Sarah Pauly's Women Talking, based on a Miriam Taves novel, among many others. What I missed, though, were the amazing yet seldom seen international films from countries like Holland, uh, Hungary, Poland, Romania, Russia, China, Japan, Turkey, Chile, Israel, Chile, Argentina, West Africa, and Italy. While there were some of these, there were nearly as many as usual. And yeah, I know there's a war going on. I know it's a pandemic and the economy and things like that. It just the balance between indie art films and big Hollywood films felt a little bit off. I did see a hell of a lot of movies this year, between 45 and 50 in all, including some I really liked and haven't even talked about yet, like Bones of Crows, an epic story of the life of a Cree woman, the powerful Danish drama Unruly, about a young woman in the 1930s locked up in an island home for the mentally disabled just because she liked drinking and having sex. The Hummingbird is a fascinatingly twisted story about the life of a man in Florence. Aristotle and Dante discover the meaning of the universe, a tender coming-of-age story set in El Paso, Texas. And All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, uh, an amazing documentary on artist Nan Golden and her fight with the philanthropist Sackler family, who also happened to bring us the opiate crisis. You want to hear something funny? All those five movies I just mentioned, those great movies, they were all directed by women. Remember those. In the end, it was the excitement, the crowds, the international audiences, the great movies, and the all-around enthusiasm that gave Toronto a certain buzz, a kind of glow all around you that you don't always see here. And that's what made TIFF a really memorable 10 days. Hi, I'm Mayor John Tory, and you're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm old enough to remember when they called it U of T Radio. Coming up next, Mark Tarr will be talking with Vera Drew, whose film The People's Joker got pulled from the festival for legal reasons. Mark was there before it was canceled, so keep listening for this exclusive interview. Where are you? Back in Arkham. Some people call me the space cowboy. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you've been feeling lately? Uh, was I born in the wrong body? What do you see? Some call me the gangster of love. Crane. Ash, little one. You'll be mama's happy little boy in no time. As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a Joker. How are you settling into the city? Things are great. I've met a ton of great people, a ton of friends. Have you found work? I'm pursuing a career in stand-up comedy. I'm gonna be a comedian! Hey, screw you, babe. 
Here's a pro tip. A lot of good comedy comes from stuff that actually happens to you. It gets good laughs. <laughs> I always thought my life was kind of a tragedy. You were mentally ill. I got you help. You were mentally ill. You I'm mentally ill. Ill. You were mentally ill. And um, it is. Let's give a warm round of applause for Joker the Harlequin. Shadow band short ribs. I'm not going to teach you how to be funny today. I'm going to teach you how to be honest. Vera, hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am well. I have to say thank you for being here to have your voice, your story be heard by the, by the LGBT community and beyond. So thank you for that, especially to talk about the people's Joker, the people's Joker, an illegal queer coming of age comic book movie, a movie that you wrote, you directed. Talk to me about the story that you're telling within this movie. What's the story that you're telling in The People's Joker? Sure, yeah, it's, um, the movie's very autobiographical. Um, it's about, you know, the logline is it's about an unfunny transgender clown uh, who uh, is named Joker and is addicted to a drug called Smilex. And she um, finds herself and finds love all while uh, starting an illegal comedy theater in, in Gotham City and facing off against a familiar caped crusader. Um, so that's kind of the surface level like synopsis. But within that, it, it really is kind of like this autobiographical story um for me uh, you know very loosely based off of my experiences as, as, as a trans woman working in comedy um and coming from the midwest and and all that stuff kind of taking all these these characters that i definitely don't own any of the rights to i'm not sure how this movie's playing its hip um but <laughs> it is uh so they can't take it back now uh but yeah really transposing my experience uh, onto them so to me this this movie is a a multimedia experience you have live action you have animation you have music so what inspired you to make the people's joker where did where did the idea the concept for this movie come from i it was something i was kicking around like like i i had a version of this um a few years ago that was really just a handful of like journals that I had written kind of processing the last decade of my life. You know, I jokingly say that I'm the transgender um, Forrest Gump of alternative comedy, just because I've like been, I've been involved or like have worked on a lot of like really amazing groundbreaking comedy television in the last 10 years. Like I've been really lucky. I worked on Nathan for you and Eric Andre and I, I came up under Tim and Eric and, worked with Sasha Baron Cohen and stuff. And I, I've really been around and have been really fortunate to, 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 to work with a lot of cool people. I needed to like really um, 
just needed to like kind of like reflect on all that in a lot of ways. So I, I want I knew I wanted to make a, like I knew I don't know that I was necessarily like, gearing up to make my first film, but I was gearing up to make a pretty long term project that was going to be about comedy, um, gender and in and, and confronting like ancestral trauma and, and, and where that all kind of can intersect. And it was right at the start of the pandemic, my friend Bree dared me to re-edit Todd Phillips' Joker. Well, it wasn't a dare. She she commissioned it, actually. It was like an art commission. It was the only time I've ever gotten an art commission, which made me feel special, but it is my friend, so it, maybe it doesn't really count. Um, but that's where the project really stemmed from then, is, you know, I was really earnestly trying to make, at first, an experimental found footage film that was going to use Batman Forever and, and Joker 2019 and sort of use all that footage to tell a new story. And I was going to, I don't know what I was going to do, but it was impossible and it was going to require me using a lot of footage that I didn't own the rights to. So, yeah, I mean, I sat down with Bree and we, I kind of was like, you know, I really actually think I want to do this. Like I'm, I'm sitting here adding fart sound effects to Joaquin Phoenix and kind of realizing that like, maybe I do think of, joker and 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 harley quinn and and like batman and stuff as like mythic characters that you know you can kind of really genuinely explore queer themes and themes of identity in and um brie was totally on board because like me you know the pandemic had just started we were both unemployed <laughs> to know what to do um so yeah i mean that was really also kind of that was all to say where the mixed media approach came in was was we wrote this script and, and what we wrote is basically what we shot. I mean, there, there was a handful of improv and stuff we like found did along you, the way. Did you do the like, animation in the movie? What's that? Did you do the animation in the movie? I did, I, well, that's what I was getting at. Like I, I did some of it, like, but if we really, op we opened up the creative process to, to anybody that wanted to participate. And I had a web series at the time Called hot topics that I announced this on and it was like the only time and I mean I mean we didn't go like crazy viral but I went like soft viral and you know we just put this message out there that was like if you know we're making we're making a queer joker movie and we need artists and animators and filmmakers who like want to contribute if you just want to make like a cool fun weird Batman movie with us head us up and we had the most overwhelming response I could have ever imagined. Like it was, it's crazy. Like over 200 people were just interested in working on it. And that's like about how many we ended up working with um, from all over the world. Uh, artists and animators and illustrators and musicians and, um, you know, and, and from all different disciplines, you know, like I, I wear a lot of hats. Like I do VFX and like I, come from animation too, like it's what I studied, but um, every discipline is, is in this movie. We have stop motion and 3D environments and mm -hmm. 2D hand-drawn, um, you know, like it, it, it really, the list goes on and- It's a multimedia um, experience. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you you just said you have an, a background in in visual effects and animation in film production in music video production how did you get into film in the first place 
it's you know I knew I don't know because I I wanted I wanted to make movies since I was like I was like um, awake <laughs> you know like since I was I could remember like I for as long as I could remember I wanted to make movies I knew I was a filmmaker before I knew I was a girl I I I really. I came into, this is my first feature film, but I almost feel like I came into my identity as a filmmaker and, and, and as just an artist in general before ever really figuring out who the fuck I was. And like, I look back at a body of work that is pretty niche um, and pretty like weird and but like cool and there's like stuff in there where I watch it now and I'm like, God, I was so, I'm so trans. I am so trans. I am so gay. And like, it was all there. It was all there in my art. In, in, in my art was very like aggressively queer. And, and, but I didn't, I didn't have that language for myself, A. And I also just wasn't comfortable with it. So, you know, like I really, film, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. So, and, and being as gay and as trans as I am, it was only inevitable that I become an artist. <laughs> like it really is. Like, I, I don't know that I really discovered filmmaking or anything. It really was just like, you know, my parents had a video camera, it was there and I needed to survive. And the only place where I really knew how to like safely explore myself growing up was, was holding a video camera or um, doing sketch comedy and improv. Or drag, but, yeah. and and now here we are in 2022 with your debut feature, The People's Joker. Yeah. Okay, 2018, you received an Emmy nomination for your editing work on Showtime's Who Is America. Yes. Talk to me about what what went through your mind the moment you found out that you got an Emmy nomination. 2018, the moment you got that notification, what goes through your mind? I found out actually like the morning, it was either like the day after or the morning of, it was so, it was like basically like a day after I had gotten like surgery. I, I um, Adam's apple shaved down. And so like I saw, I got a notification and somebody sent me an article saying that we got nominated and I didn't believe it for like 48, like for 48 hours I just thought I was in some sort of weird like, post-anesthesia delusion or something because I don't know I mean it's it's the same way I feel about getting the movie getting into TIFF like I was just talking to Brie about it like it feels like we snuck in or something like it's it's like I don't know like I'm you know like I'm 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 from the middle of nowhere raised by two people that you've never heard of and like I just never thought of people like me getting to go to like Emmys or, or film festivals and stuff and um yeah, it was, it was sick. I mean, like, I would have loved to have won, but, like, even not winning was kind of cool because, like, you know, we didn't win, so we didn't have to speak. And but you got nominated. Got, yeah, we got nominated, and then we got to just dance and, like, have, have fun in, like, an open bar. Like, it was, it was one of the few times, like, working in this industry, too, that I really did feel like, ooh, like, Hollywood, <laughs> you know, like. Normally, and I'm just you, like, and you were seen. You were, you were yeah. seen, and I think that that's the most important aspect. Yeah, you, and it really was. It was like it was my first time because my name change coincided with my Emmy nomination, mm -hmm. and it it was like kind of this 
this moment of like really like okay this is who i am like i'm not that like shy weird sweaty boy that's just sitting in the the editing bay i'm a beautiful goth princess Mm. who gets nominated for emmys i have two questions left for you and just a a handful of minutes you you are part of the lgbt community you are you are trans i believe you came out in your early 20s talk to me about what led you to come out in your early 20s i actually came out when i was 28 um and and really it was just that's early age <laughs> yeah it's early you know what it, the the lead up to that my 20s felt so long by the way like it was a dark time for me like i was i was you know my movie talks about it you know pretty metaphorically but like i had a drug problem that was pretty rough and like i was not a happy person and it's weird because like coming out really wasn't it wasn't like i didn't have like these moments a big moment of realization it really was just i had tried on every single identity at that point like i had really tried everything and i had done you know i was prescribed and medicated crazy drugs and like like diagnosis everything under the sun and like it really was just kind of like I ruled out every other possibility and it was just like, Oh, I'm just like, I'm just, I'm trans. And um, yeah, I mean like I didn't really have the support system around me when it, when it started. And I think, you know, that's pretty clear from the movie. Like I, I didn't really have, but I think none of us really do. I, I do think like on some level, the coming out process is a death for queer people. And, and you do, experience loss no matter what and and it it for me it wasn't necessarily a bad thing it, it really uh it helped me kind of recalibrate and, and move towards uh just the things that allow me to be authentic i don't know is that a good answer i i never know how to answer yes that. yes <laughs> okay so my last question for you yeah. the people's joker live action animation music there's even an animated erotic scene in, uh-huh. in the movie yeah what what do you hope what do you hope audiences come away with after they've seen your debut feature the people's joker well i i, I don't know i mean that's it's it's a tough question because like i never really set out to like the movie doesn't have like a one message um beyond just like be yourself you know like i really do feel like the movie is kind of simple in a lot of ways um where like it really is just about being true to yourself and and leaning into authenticity and pushing through fear because on the other side of fear there usually is authenticity and 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 love and stuff and you know i hope people can can take that away from it i hope people can see that like the trans experience goes beyond just like fucking conservative talking points and like also goes beyond like just woke scolding and you know, like it's very unique. There's not a one size fits all approach to any queer person's life. Um, but within that specificity, I hope people can see that like, you know, my experience growing up and figuring out who I was isn't that different than, than, than you know, uh, a, a cis person's. Um, and I hope people too can see like genre films you know, are, are a place where you can explore these things. Like if, 
if we are just now living in a culture where all we make are superhero movies, like, we can make superhero movies like this. Like, you can make soft, queer <laughs> superhero movies. Like, anybody can do it. And, and, like, genre is the perfect place, actually, to unpack themes because genre allows you to really um, utilize fiction and myth to its fullest potential. Hmm. Well said, well said. Vera Drew, I have to say thank you so much for your time. Well said, well done, and well made. Thank you, Mark. My name is Charles Officer, and I'm the writer and director of Invisible Essence, The Little Prince on CIUT 89.5 FM. Don't touch that dial. Coming up next is an excerpt from Donna G's interview with South African director John Barker about his new dramatic thriller, The Umbrella Man, which premiered at TIFF 22. Yeah, so the it's set in Cape Town, and it's set in the um, Cape Malay community of Cape Town, which is predominantly in the Boer Carp area, which used to be the slave quarters. Um, and in the history of Cape Town, there was a there was another suburb in Cape Town called District Six D Six, which was uh, was again the same thing you say is it was a melting pot of different cultures, um, black people, white people, Jewish people. Muslim from all walks of life, all living together, and it and it irked the um, the apartheid government because the apartheid government saw that as the worst possible scenario, having different cultures um, living harmoniously together. So they unfortunately kicked out all the the inhabitants um, and they sent them to all four corners of Cape Town, and they bulldozed the um, the once really beautiful bohemian suburb of D six. So. A lot of those residents uh, fled and hid in the Boer Carp, which is more higher up on the mountain, which is the slave areas. Um, and they survived living out there, and, and they continued to keep the, the culture of, of, of singing uh, as minstrels. They kept that going all through apartheid. And so I just really wanted to highlight and to focus on a community that uh, survived for so long and that managed to preserve um, the cultural elements that are so um, important to them, and it's a it's a beautiful area that you that you're shooting in. Um, how familiar were you with that area before this film? A very, I mean, the the minstrels are a big part of South Africa. My my father was a, a is a soccer coach, and he was uh, coaching in, in mostly uh, black townships. He was coaching Amazulu in the seventies, and um, his team got into a final in Cape Town. So we drove down to Cape Town and he drove us. My dad was an uh, anti-apartheid activist. And um, so he drove us to District 6 to show us what was going on there. And it was terrible. It was a, a apocalyptic scenes where it looked like it was the Second World War where like cities had been bombed because it was half pulled down buildings and kids still playing in the streets while bulldozers were knocking down buildings in the background and, so that kind of always stayed with me. Um, and then on top of that, my parents took me to see the minstrels perform when I was really young and I was completely fascinated by that. So I always wanted to make a film about that community. And the strange thing is it's, it's such a beautifully rich community that has so many amazing facets to it, especially music, which 
they used as a way of fighting their colonial masters. And there's been so few films made about that community. And most of the films tend to focus on the negative side of that community. They, they tend to focus on gangsterism and, uh, and those kind of things and prison films. But there's such a beautiful, there's so many beautiful elements to that community that aren't uh, gangster related. So I just um, was always inspired to make a film about the good aspects of that community. Is the BOCAP in danger of being lost like the rest of District 6? Yes, very much. Gentrification is a huge part of uh, what's happening in, in BOCAP at the moment because, you know, there's the big business and corporates arrive and, and show people uh, decent uh, amounts of money to buy their lifelong, you know, thing, something that's been in their, in their families for hundreds of years and people are desperate. So they, they sell they sell their houses and then those places are knocked down and replaced by, you know, skyscrapers. And, um, and that's happening all the time with the book cop. So it's a huge thing of, of how do the, the local people hold on to their, to their birthrights, you know, to, to something that's been in their families forever. And um, they're tempted by, by, by money. And, and so people are selling up and they, you know, so it's, it's, it's a crazy situation. It's actually a, a worldwide situation um, that's yeah. happening with gentrification where predominantly, I would say, neighborhoods where people of color lived and developed culture and community. Um, but there's also, you know, elements of, of poverty. And so they're mm. put in this situation where they're being offered money, um, which will, yeah. you, know, you know, make their lives better but it changes the, the cultural term, yeah. yeah yeah it changes just, the cultural yeah. makeup of of the area yeah and it's lost now the you mentioned the the minstrels uh for people who are listening uh here in in toronto um our side we're more used to it to it being called carnival yeah i mean it, you know it's the, the same the, the things that you mentioned now with, uh, you know, with um, uh, New Orleans and obviously with uh, Rio and um, anywhere where there was a community of, of slaves, they would, it's very similar to what happened in Cape Town because it was a thing that brought everyone together. And there's a weird, there's such a weird connection with America um, with the, with the minstrels because the, the slaves were emancipated in, in 1840s in Cape Town. And just, Prior to that, there was a ship that had come over from the States, obviously a whole lot of white sailors, you know, doing blackface. Um, and and for some weird reason, the slaves took it on, obviously the inverse of that, and then painted their faces white and celebrated being minstrels when they were freed and they took to the streets dressed as minstrels. So, you know, there was that. And, and then obviously the cool thing about the minstrels is they would sing songs um, the colonial masters wouldn't understand what they were saying because they would sing in, in Afrikaans, which is a language which is now really, really gaining um, uh, credibility. But in those days, they would sing songs that would 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 take the, the mickey out of, or take fun or poke fun at the colonial masters. And it was the one time when they could do that. And it was just, it's just such a, a key thing to that um, community that even... Um, 
you know, it was weird because of the, whoever was the colonial master at the time, whether it was Holland or was the Dutch or the English, it would go back and forth. And at some stage they were freed and then their freedom was taken away and then apartheid happened. And even through apartheid, this community and the minstrels continued to, um, to thrive and to keep this culture alive by using comedy and, and, and taking the mickey out of their masters all the time, which is also fascinating elements. Um, and so it was key for, for us when we were making the film that we were true to all of those um, elements and that we, we, um, we did justice to, to what those, those people had gone through, through, through apartheid and through slavery. Um, did you have any locals uh, assist you with the car- with the car- carnival elements? Yeah, it was key. It was very important that we had all of our HODs were black. Um, uh, all of our HODs were from the community, uh, and that lent a lot of authenticity to the project. Obviously, you know, I'm an old white guy, so I'm very much uh, not part of that community. But we did everything we could in terms of the writing and in terms of um, in terms of making sure that the cast and the crew were all uh, from the community. You have a wonderful character named um, Aunt V. <laughs> yes. Tell Auntie me Val. about that, Auntie Val. Tell me about that actress. She's June Van Merch. She's absolutely amazing. She's tiny. She's petite. She's like five foot tall. And um, we were worried about some of because we have to, there was a couple of scenes that were actually cut out of the film, but she was in the tunnels, the tunnels that exist under the, under the castle. Um, and in that car, it was crazy. We found a snake. There were cockroaches. There were rats. There were, the smell was so foul down there. And I was really worried about June being stuck in the tunnels with us. But she was she was amazing. She was up and down the ladders all day. She, she's just like she's got so much energy, and and she was so brilliant to have in the film. She kept us all laughing, and she's just like she, her energy is is mad. She's she's an incredible woman, and. Um, Initially, when I wrote this like 14 years ago, Auntie V wasn't a big part of the film, but as time has gone by, we changed, because it was all guys at one stage, it was all men in the film, but luckily we have really strong female characters, and Auntie V being our matriarch was, it was so beautiful that she came to light and that uh, she has such a big part in the film. So, yeah, she's, she's crazy. She really is. CIUT 89.5, Toronto. Hi, what's your name? My name's Kathy. Hello, Kathy. What are you here on King Street for? Why are you here? I am here standing in line with my daughter. I have a ticket for Causeway, the premiere, which I'm very excited to see. My daughter did not was not able to get a ticket, so I'm standing in the rush line for her where she's hoping to get a ticket. Okay, so TIFF. TIFF 2022. We're back. We're in person after two years of a pandemic. How are you feeling about that? I am really excited. This is my first film festival. My daughter is in the film industry. She has a, a company that does events and premieres, and um, she invited me. So I love movies. I am so excited. I've already seen a number of phenomenal movies, and I have a number of phenomenal movies lined up to see in the next couple of days. So before I go back to my real life, I'm just thrilled to be here. Any movies that, that you've seen so far stand out to you that, that have made an impression on you? Anything comes to mind? Yes, um, we saw Emily 
phenomenal. Um, I know a little bit about Emily Bronte's story, but learned a lot more. Very interesting. Saw The Woman King and just powerhouse action dynamic. Saw Bros. And Bros is a phenomenal movie. You will laugh, you will cry, and um, I, I recommend everything I've seen so far. Last question for you. What does TIFF mean to you? TIFF means an opportunity for people to come together, celebrate films, and for people in the film industry to showcase their talent, um, a place for new emerging filmmakers to come and make a name for themselves, people that wouldn't be known to get picked up by other studios. It's just a phenomenal um, opportunity for anyone who loves film, works in film, or is interested in film. Amazing. Well said, well done. Thanks for your time. Yes, thank you. Good evening, everyone. How are you? Good evening and welcome. Coming up next, Sam Soko and Lauren DeFilippo about their fascinating documentary, Free Money. Hi, this is Daniel Garber, the movies for culturalmining.com and CIUT 89.5 FM. In a poor East African village in Kenya, some of the kids there can't afford schooling while others have a bleak future ahead of them. Various foreign NGOs have come and gone over the years, leaving poverty and disappointment in their wake. The latest one tries a different tact. They're offering a monthly stipend paid to all adult members of the village for over a decade to see if this can transform their lives. But what's the catch? And what do they mean by free money? Free Money is a new documentary that looks at the effects of UBI, Universal Basic Income, on the people who receive it and those who don't. The film was made over many years tracing changes in the villagers, concentrating on the lives of three of them. The film is directed by two award-winning documentarians. Lauren DeFilippo's film, uh, acclaimed doc, Ailey, played theatrically in Toronto and across North America, Nairobi-based Sam Soko's film, Softy, was a big hit at Toronto's Hot Docs Documentary Film Festival. Free Money had its world premiere at TIFF, and I'm very pleased to have Lauren and Sam here on site at TIFF to tell us more about Free Money. Hi, Sam. Hi. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Lauren, where did you first hear about this program? I first heard about uh, Give Directly's experiment uh, from a New York Times article. Uh, it was called The Future of Not Working, and uh, it profiled this massive experiment that they were running um, really across Kenya. Um, but it was presented in a really interesting way in that, uh, you know, it was this idea of UBI. This back in about 2017. A lot of people are not familiar with UBI, Universal Basic Income. Um, it was sort of just kind of brewing in like the corners of the internet. And uh, it was really being talked about particularly by Silicon Valley as a potential way to get around this kind of AI-driven future we were all facing where the robots take our jobs and how will we all survive. And so this organization, Give Directly, was looking at a UBI and they were testing it out um, in rural Kenya. And uh, I thought that the contrast of that was very interesting to me, kind of this really innovative idea uh, playing out in such a rural place, um, but also was 
I guess you could say, uh, skeptical about experimenting on such a vast population of people living in poverty. Uh, so I was able to secure access to Give Directly um, and started filming as they rolled out their experiment in one village in particular called Kugutu. And um, quickly realized that this was, you know, something bigger than just a film about universal basic income, about an idea. It was really a character story of these people who were uh, part of this experiment and were going to be impacted uh, profoundly by it. And, uh, you know, being a white Westerner also knew that I was really out of my depth in kind of telling such an intimate story as I wanted to about a group of rural Kenyans, and particularly with being drawn to the kids in the village already, the teenagers. Um, and so I started looking for someone who could collaborate on this with me and um, potentially co-direct. And I had heard about Sam Soko and his film Softy, um, and I reached out. Yeah. <laughs> and so, Sam, what happened next? Um, so, Lauren reached out. Um, it was at the point where um, we're in post-production with my, my last film, and then um, she told me about this idea and the experiment that was just kicking off. Um, and I was extremely skeptical for so many reasons. And it took me a while to not only just think about it, but also essentially do my due diligence um, primarily because Kenya has and Africa has a very checkered ex uh, past and experience with non-governmental organizations and a lot of people they they come with ill or sometimes good intentions but there's so many unintended consequences of what they're doing and whenever they realize it's not going their way they just ship up, ship out, and leave the consequences that the things they've created, the problems they've created at play. And so a lot of us are hugely skeptical of NGOs. So the thought that there's an NGO, a New York-based NGO coming to Kenya to just give free money is like, what? No, it's not. It's not a thing. And some of the village, some of the villagers called it dirty money. Yeah. It's what do they like, mean by that? It's, it's, again, just inherently the past of, of people coming to say they want to help you creates uh, a deep culture of fear, skepticism. Um, and the only, the, not only, it's one of the interpretations you have with someone coming to be like, if someone shows up at your door and you're like, I want to give you $1,000 every month for 12 years, you'll be like, wait, what? And, and the, the way, we, we're a deeply religious uh, society. And in a lot of religions, it's the way you see it, that has to be devil's money. <laughs> it's, if, if, it's only the devil who would be like, who want to trap you with that money. <laughs> and, and for a lot of villages, like, I, you can't blame them. It's, it's, they've suffered a lot in the hands of, of do-gooders, in quotes. And so that's what they meant by dirty money. So when the money started coming in, what were the initial major changes? Um, overall, people were extremely happy. Um, I think it, I think in a way they were kind of just shocked that it actually came through. You know, there's a scene in the film where they get the, that first transfer on their phones, and um, I think there's just this feeling of, 
oh my god, they actually delivered on this thing that they told us that they promised. Um, and you know, I think for the village of Kagutu itself, um, the effects of the money have have been very positive. Um, people have really uh, focused on school fees for their children um, in in Kenya. Um, I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but public education isn't really it's, an it's, option. It's, you pay for school. Yeah, like right? a lot of people have to, even if some of the school might be free, but that, there's so much money that's needed to just, you know, books and other stuff that people need, and it's it's it becomes expensive. So them having a consistent level of income that allows them to take their kids to school or at least support part of the the fees that is needed for school then just made makes a big difference so so one thing i'm curious about is the money was distributed equally to an 18 year old or someone who's much older and to women and men what effect did that have to social relationships within the village so initially of course there's incredible because again our society is also deeply patriarchal so that so the men the families rely on the men to to bring in bread and you know pay for stuff so this money offered the opportunity for a lot of women for the first time to have a consistent income as well so a lot of the men were hugely scared because you know their their wives would get up and leave because now she has money as well and and this skepticism of course was met by even the women there's like a lot of women who were like if with this money it means you know, our, our men would go out and start drinking, and and they would not be in the home. But over time, it's it's actually brought in a lot of families together because they realize, you know, if you get the money and I get the money, we have we put in the money together, we can do a lot more as a family. Um, yeah, I think on the positive side of the effects of this money, that that's what what has happened. Like a lot of people are keen in planning and building and doing their work but then on the flip side of it is it created a, a social stratifi uh, stratification like a wealth stratification like in a place where gener the general area was relatively equal you have now one one small part of that area becoming more equal than the other part so I've read that it has a strange effect where the people in the surrounding villages, sort of the test cases or the, I, I, I forget the word they use, but in those cases, their life, their, their feelings of happiness doesn't stay the same. It goes down mm -hmm. because they're confronted with people who are suddenly have all these things that they don't have mm -hmm. when they used to be all on the same level. Uh, could you talk about the effects of that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so you really have to keep in mind too, we're talking about it's essentially a family. Like, yes, these are neighbors, but they are really related um, and really separated by, in this case, in our film, just a stream. It's like kind of nothing, you know, this this very small barrier. And so, um, yeah, the people on the side who do not get the money um, really start to see the world differently. <laughs> they... Um, they're not treated at the same at the market as somebody who has money, who shows up and a vendor knows that they're good for it and can pay. Um, the stratification starts to happen. And also in the film, you, you really see them kind of talking about give directly as a God like figure who um, is chosen to bestow this on one group, but not them. And they can't really understand why, what did they do wrong? 
I'm also interested in the effect on the economy. I mean, before this happened, people would pay cash, they go to the market, or they barter, they trade, they marketplaces there, and all of a sudden, this sector, this one village, has a cell phone, and money appears digitally in their lives. Isn't that a major technological shift? So, in- interestingly, a key reason why GiveDirectly chose Kenya and not only this village is so mobile money as as a technological concept in 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 Kenya and parts of Africa is probably much much more advanced oh, okay. than it is in the West. Oh, okay, um, where essentially your phone number is a bank account. So with with your phone number, then using your phone number, someone just can just send you money to your phone number, and it's equal to money more or less, whatever they send. So you could actually even go to the shop or somewhere and ex- when you can send it to the phone number of the shopkeeper, and the shopkeeper gives you actual cash. So everyone had a phone before the program anyway. Or? So everybody has a phone number at least. It's oh, like okay. A SIM card. So everybody has. Oh, they have the SIM card, but but, but they were given a phone so, by the program. So they were given phones by the program just to facilitate them getting the money. Um, and but most people in the villages have phones. Yeah, they do have phones. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. It was just a means of guaranteeing that whoever who they are enrolling in the program right. is able to access money with a phone. Yeah, with their phone. Yeah. So. Ideally, a UBI is universal, mm-hmm. but in this case, it's not universal at all. It's universal mainly within one village. But exactly. in your film, you show that there were some members of the village who didn't get it. Could you talk about the, those cases or that case? So in, in our film, we concentrated particularly on on the young the young group. So partic- these three individuals, um, two of whom... So the experiment, people who are above the age of 15... Um, when the experiment started, we'll start getting the money when they're 18. So we, we were concentrating on these two individuals who they kind of qualified to get the money when they're 18. So we were tracking the expectation of, you know, how do, you, how do they feel over a period of time thinking they know this money is going to come. But we were also looking at this other individual who was 18 at the time. So he received the money. So how do they view their future after that? So, you know, they want to go to college and all. They were so excited. This money is going to make that possible. So there there was also a girl who was for some reason excluded. Yeah, exactly. So the the two the two individuals were over 15 who we were, you know, we were expecting they were going to get the money. One of them doesn't um, for a myriad of reasons, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, technical reasons. Essentially, GD has a protocol. Give directly has a protocol, and they felt after investigating that this woman, this young girl, did not meet that protocol. They seem very strict mm-hmm. uh, in this charity. Why? What? What is the purpose of such hard, hard-nosed uh, enforcement? Well, first of all, they're data-driven as an organization, so I think they kind of live and die by protocol and that sort of level of technicality around what they do and their their collection of evidence. Um, but I think for them, it's also kind of become a way where they feel like they a village like Kagutu can trust them. If they give them very clear rules, um, they feel like if they, you know, live up to those rules, they gain credibility within the village. Um, I think, you know, what we see with this girl Jael, though, is really a lack of communication from the organization about whether she'll get the money, and she kind of becomes 
collateral damage in a lot of ways um, for something that could be for a greater good, could kind of be with all this transparency and honesty and technicality around it, but it, it really kind of is an example of someone who, who falls through the cracks and kind of dealing with this big organization and a human experiment on this scale. Sam, you've looked at uh, political corruption, in, especially in Kenya itself. What do you think would happen in a program like this if it became policy of the government or a, an actual UBI? within the country, whether foreign-funded or domestically-funded? Um, the money, particularly in our experiment, that they were getting is $22. Right. $22 out here is not doesn't feel like a lot of money. But in a village, $22 is a lot of money. It makes a difference on whether you're going to eat or not. So the corruption and other things in terms of how government works for, for me just to think about it makes it feel impossible but <laughs> possibility if if such a thing happens it would it's a game changer in how the the potential to have someone not having to worry about what they're gonna eat or where they're gonna sleep allows them to dream and I think the greatest for me the greatest positive positive thing about a universal basic income is the ability sorry is the ability to dream because if you're just worrying about what to eat you have no time to dream however the beauty of it being run by a government is there are structures that exist so if there's a problem if there's an issue or if there's something you need to to follow up on there's accountability like there's a possibility of accountability which is different for if it when it's run by a private institution because where do you take it and finally I'm wondering for many many years uh, uh, all of Africa were, were made into colonies and huge amounts of wealth were extracted which basically built Europe and North America into their current economic status to have a reversal even this small wouldn't it look strange i mean would would it would it look as if it's the west that's supporting africa as opposed to vice versa i i, I, I in other I'm words like, what, what what sort of situation would it be i'm like um <laughs> it's it's not i don't think it's even supposed to be support it's it's reparations okay it is it is what it's nothing more, nothing less than what Africa deserves. It's, it's, I think, it, again, it's a complicated, long conversation and everything, but it's not a lie that the continent was extracted from. It's not a lie it continues to be extracted from. That's right. And I think con continuously having, speak, even speaking about corruption and all these other things that are happening in the continent as an excuse of not, of not, giving or paying reparations it's an excuse because let back to like what the beauty of something like UBI is all about agency and the agency is for the people give them that opportunity to make the choice let them have the fights with their corrupt leaders it's not on you to decide what is good for the people in the continent the people in the continent know what is good for them on those words, uh, let's end this discussion. But thanks so much for talking with me, uh, Lauren and Sam. Thank you.
Free Money had its world premiere at TIFF and is coming soon. This is Daniel Garber, the movies each Saturday morning on CIUT 89.5 FM and on my website, culturalmining.com. The sound of your city. CIUT 89.5 Toronto. Well, TIFF is over for the year, and so is our CIUT at TIFF 2022, but the movies will keep showing all year round. Thanks so much for listening. Donna G., how can people find out more about you and your show? Thanks for asking, Daniel Garber. People can find me at TMTM with Donna G on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And don't forget to listen Sunday afternoons, 1 to 2 p.m. at www.ciut.fm. Mark Tara, how can people find out more about you and your show? Thank you, Daniel Garber. Well, you can find me at Rainbow Country right here on CIUT, Tuesdays, 11 p.m. And you can hear me, Daniel Garber, the movies, each Saturday morning at 9 a.m. on CIUT 89.5 FM Critic Circle, on Twitter at Cultural Mining, and on my website, culturalmining.com. Thank you so much for tuning in to CIUT for our special coverage of the 47th Toronto International Film Festival. Taking us out, it's Walk On By by Isaac Hayes. <laughs>